Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we start a new series called Family of Influence, and our first message is God and Gender. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When I first began in pastoral ministry, I couldn't then have imagined that the question of family would become a controversial question. I'm speaking and teaching about the family would be encouraging and, well, sometimes challenging and sometimes convicting, and even at times it would call a person to repent, but, but controversial, well, never. We all assumed both a definition of family and the importance of family. Well, back then it was understood what a family was, although occasionally we debated about whether we would be talking about a nuclear family or an extended family. Well, back then, the Canadian Constitution even enshrined the definition of marriage within Canadian laws. Marriage was defined as the union of one man to one woman to the exclusion of all others. And we in the church could make a biblical case of why that was so. And so whether by what the Catholics called natural law or whether by biblical law, all things served to stress the importance of defending marriage and the family. So at least on this foundational matter of family, the church viewed the state as protecting that which God in his grace had given the human race. Divorce, although it was permissible, was restricted. A couple might appear before a Canadian justice and request a divorce, and might, I say might, receive a lecture from the justice on the importance of marriage to the culture as a whole, and after a strong reprimand, the judge might deny the request for a divorce and then demand the couple go home and work things out. I mean, after all, all of society was dependent on these things. But so much has changed in just a few decades. The relaxing of Canada's divorce laws sent a flood of couples to Canadian courts, all receiving an instant divorce. And we were told not to worry. This was simply a backlog and that rates of divorce would quickly go down once the bubble was through the system. But that didn't happen. The, the rate of divorce remained high. And then, of course, came the sexual revolution. Of course, there was adultery before the sexual revolution, as well as sex before marriage. But now we, and by we, I mean we as a culture, had cut the cord between sex and marriage. Sex outside of marriage, which had been discouraged, was now encouraged. And the respect for virginity at the marriage altar was openly mocked. All shame was removed. And then came the homosexual revolution, which, which of course was closely attached to another revolution. It was a revolution about how we thought about gender. And prior to this revolution, it was assumed that men and women were fundamentally different at key points. And this difference mandated the playing of different roles in society. Who stayed home and who went to work was a matter of gender. Your gender was thought to have been given by God and determined the focus in your life. But all of that was very quickly changing. Soon there were those who argued that gender roles were a social construct designed to keep women in subjugation under men. Furthermore, it was now thought that one's gender was simply a matter of genitalia, or as some have said, it was no more than the difference in the plumbing. And so homosexual relations were to be celebrated even as heterosexual ones were. Very quickly, homosexuality moved from a category of mental illness in psychology and psychiatry textbooks to a matter of orientation and a matter of pride and celebration. 
Well, more followed. Next came the redefinition of marriage. No longer was marriage the union of one man to one woman to the exclusion of all others, but marriage now came to describe the union of any two people, regardless of gender. Now, if I could interject here, I suspect the time will come when we're going to argue that marriage need not be two people at the exclusion of others. I mean, why two? Why, why not three or more? Well, we're going to see. But that revolution was quickly followed by the idea that gender itself was a fluid concept. Suddenly, gender was no longer a matter of plumbing, but gender now became a matter of certain traits deemed to be either feminine or masculine. And we were told these traits were there regardless of the plumbing. LGBTQ became letters that were quickly understood and became a part of public policy. Failure to accept these categories amounted to hatred and became equated with a civil rights movement. People within various categories of gender and sexual orientation needed to have their rights protected. And soon flags were flying, multicolored flags flown in large rallies and in urban centers, and politicians were strongly expected to be there. Sporting events now frequently contained messages to keep free of racism, sexism, homophobism, and gender bias. But of course, there's more. The church itself was undergoing the same set of revolutions that were occurring in society. Biblical texts that once seemed plain to everyone were being radically reinterpreted. Those holding the historic Christian position on sex and marriage and family were either told they didn't understand the new hermeneutic or that they were a part of the church's suppression and persecution of people who were different. Some were saying the time was at hand to change. Now, where are we as a society heading? See, wherever we go next, one thing remains clear. No social movement ever just arrives. Movements are not stationary things. They move. Movements don't aim at a target and then stop. Movements always progress. So it's quite natural to ask, where are we going and what comes next? I think we all have ideas as to what comes next, but, in, but instead of projecting into the future, let me take you to the past, 2,000 years ago in the city of Ephesus. You know, that city has long interested me because at the end of the first century, Ephesus would have been considered the center of the Christian world. And what a center it was. The Apostle Paul had labored there for a significant length of time. John, who became the last surviving apostle, made Ephesus his home. His leadership from that city was ideally suited to give leadership to the entire Christian church. Mary, the mother of Jesus, lay buried there. Ephesus had become a Christian center. But that didn't mean that Ephesus had become a Christian city. Indeed, it was anything but that. Ephesus was one of the great multi-religious centers of the world. The city housed the very famous temple of Artemis, which has become known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Remember, Paul was almost lynched because there were those who claimed that he had insulted Artemis. See, this temple attracted thousands of worshipers from all over the ancient world. See, Ephesus was also known for its sensuality. If you go to the ruins of Ephesus today, you're going to find a great library at the end of a large ornate street and across from the library you'll find the ruins of an ancient brothel. There'll be an underground tunnel that connected those two buildings, the library and the brothel. And when I was there, our guide said, don't you see, you could say, honey, I'm going to the library. You know, but in truth, you wouldn't have to say that at all. 
Attitudes around sex in Ephesus were such that a man might actually say, Honey, I'm off to see the brothel. And so imagine a city of endless temples to the gods and goddesses as, as well as open and public brothels and a willingness to engage in every form of sensuality. And it is within the city itself that the, the Christian community forged a well-defined and very different way of living. Well, how did all of that work? Well, let's listen to Paul's words to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful practices, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Would you notice that the Christians were not trying to get laws passed in Ephesus that upheld their standards of morality? Rather, what they were interested in doing was building an authentic Christian community right in the heart of a very sensuous and sexually impure culture. Now, in doing that, they sometimes forbade certain actions. All through the New Testament, you'll hear these prohibitions and warnings against attending orgies or giving oneself over to sensuality. This was a part of basic Christian teaching. And that, I suggest, is exactly what we should be doing today. Instead of bemoaning the moral direction of sex and gender and marriage and civil rights, I think the time has come to say, this is how things actually are. But we don't have to capitulate. We need more than anything else to build authentic Christian communities, just like they did in Ephesus. We need to start from childhood and teach and reinforce that Christian family is central to the Christian faith. We need to return to the family in the church. Gratitude, the quality of being thankful and readiness to show appreciation. Well, as part of the team at Back to the Bible Canada, we want to express our ready gratitude for your kindness. Your generosity during our June-July match campaigns exceeded expectations. He is a great God. Your partnership not only helped meet the fiscal year-end goal, but reinforced the presence of those across our nation who embrace a passion for Bible teaching. To express our appreciation, we want to send all of our listeners a free copy of the book, Family Worship. It's a wonderful tool that helps incorporate worship into the family home. So thanks, and stay with us as together we strive to champion the truth of God's Word. Call and ask for your free copy of Family Worship, or offer a gift this month to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm trying to make a case for a unique Christian community living in a wider, non-Christian culture. 
I, for my own self, see no advantage in asking how we respond to the wider social movements that have left us where we are today. Instead, I think it necessary that we reestablish the Christian ethic of marriage and family among us. I see no advantage in trying to establish laws seeking to reestablish the traditional view of marriage. I see every advantage in helping the church to live in an authentic way. And one of the places we must start is in reteaching the value of marriage and family. But why? Because, according to the Bible, which forms the basis of all Christian understanding, marriage, family, and sexual morality is basic to our common life in Christ. So over this week, I want to establish a biblical foundation for one, gender, two, marriage, three, sexual intimacy, and four, the differing roles in marriage. It's my understanding that these matters are essential to living the Christian life. Or to put it another way, I don't think anyone can live the Christian life without understanding these matters. These matters are basic to Christian discipleship. So since I'm discussing four matters, that of gender, then marriage, then sexual intimacy, and then gender roles, I think it best to start at the beginning. Let's talk about the matter of gender. The conversation about gender takes us back to the creation account. Genesis 1:27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, let me skip forward to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, from these two verses, let me point out three essential issues. The first is that gender is the creation of God. And I suppose that God could have chosen any number of means to propagate the species. I mean, we do see this in nature. So, for instance, in New Mexico and, and in other southern climates, the whiptail lizard is only female and needs no male to propagate. Furthermore, single-celled organisms like bacteria reproduce asexually. Suffice it to say that God is infinite in his creativity. But the God of infinite creativity chose to create man in terms of male and female. This he does for a purpose, and as we're going to see, he had marriage, intimacy, relationship, and community in mind when he does so. Now, the second issue is, is that God thought that man is male and female was very good. You know, even though man could have been created in different ways, male and female is exceptional. This is God in his work of excellence. When God created the genders, he did not say that this is going to work. He said, this is the best way for man to be. This is not an accident or simply an adaptation to the environment. Rather, gender is a part of God's good and best intention for the human race. And so let's make application to Christian discipleship. We need to tell our little boys that it's good to be a boy, that being a boy and growing into a man is a part of the Creator's intention for you. We need to tell our little girls that it's good to be a girl and that being a girl and growing into a woman is a part of the Creator's intention for you. And as Christians, our first order of business is to submit to our Creator. And this begins as we submit to His design in our creation. God wants you to play out your role in this world according to the gender that he in his infinite wisdom has assigned to you. He did so by creating you either male or female, boy or girl, man or woman. Now again, as we move through this series, I will explain more and more about why that's so essential. 
But I would argue in Sunday school, at home, and in every discipleship lesson to our kids, they must be helped to see the wisdom of God in their gender, and they must also be helped to see the wisdom of God in the creation of their counterpart, that is, the opposite gender. They must be told that both are a part of God's good design and his wisdom for their lives. But I've said that there are three issues from Genesis 1. First, that God created male and female, and then second, that the creation of the human race in this way is very good, and then third, that man is male and female is the image of God. Now, I need to stop here and explain a basic bit of reasoning from the concept of the image of God. Now, when we think of what it means to be in the image of God, we need to reason only in one direction and not in two. Well, what do I mean? I mean we need to begin with the nature of God and from that reason as to how that nature is found in human beings. But we never start with human beings and their nature and reason backwards to what it must mean to be God. See, if we start with ourselves and reason backwards to God, we end up with what? Idolatry. We make God in our image. If, on the other hand, we begin with God and then seek to understand something about ourselves, we're usually on the right track. We will find then what it means to be in the image of God. So we reason one way and not in both ways. Now, it's helpful here to remember that what we know about God comes to us from what God has revealed about himself. And so when we study our Bibles to discover who God is, we quickly learn that in some ways, we're not like God at all. And in some ways, we're remarkably like God. Theologians often call this God's communicable and his incommunicable attributes. Let's make this simple. God is spirit, and we are made of physical elements. So in that sense, we're not like God at all. Here's another example. God is omnipresent. That is, he's present to all spaces at all times. We aren't. If you go through the attributes of God, you'll find many areas in which God is unique. That is, he's unlike every other thing in all creation. After all, he is eternal and we're temporal. But in other ways, we're remarkably like God. God is a great creator, and even though he creates out of nothing, yet we know that human beings create concepts in their minds and bring those concepts into reality that is the image of God for another. We know that God is eternal, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And interestingly enough, human beings do think about the past and we do project into the future. In our minds and in our imagination, we try to incorporate the idea of time. We don't just live in the moment. We are in the image of God and think in terms of many years. Now, where am I going with all of this? When I said that being male and female is in the image of God, I did not want to say that God is male and female. Remember, to say that would be idolatry. We don't start with us and project backwards to God. That always leads to error. Instead, I'm saying that there is something in the nature of God that leads us to understand what we experience in male-female relationships. See, one of the things we learn about God is that he is triune. That is, there is but one God, and yet this one God has eternally existed in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Furthermore, the more we learn about the nature of this one God in three persons, the more we understand that even while the three persons are co-equal from all eternity, they, that is, the three, play unique and distinct functions. I mean, the easiest place to see that is in our salvation. The Father uniquely planned our salvation and even chose his own. 
The Son uniquely accomplished our salvation by becoming our sin substitute and submitting to the Father even unto death on the cross. And the Holy Spirit uniquely enabled our salvation by drawing us to the Father and the Son and giving us a new heart. See, God the Trinity is relationship, community love, and functions in distinct roles even while all three persons are equal. Now, now think about man as male and female. The Bible indicates that there's something unique about being a male, and there's something unique about being a female. And in human terms, we are not complete without this complementary relationship. Indeed, in Genesis 2, verse 10, we read, Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Or I suppose we could take that to say, I will make him a helper exactly suited for him. Now, as we go along in this series, I will say that we need to teach our little boys and our little girls to highly value their gender as a precious gift, to see their gender as a part of their calling, and highly prize marriage, and look forward to the day of their marriage. You know, some will be called to remain single, but that will be the exception for reasons that God reveals. But God designed human beings not only in two genders, but he did so for the purpose of living in marriage, one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. See, I'm reading Genesis 2 verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is something about this one fleshing thing, this becoming one together, that expresses the image of God. So much more to be said. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to highly value the way in which you have created us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, uh, you know, you're, you're bringing up a great issue, a very contemporary issue, something that we're dealing with every day in our culture today. Uh, can I ask you, though, is it important that our listeners understand that you're talking to the church? Yeah, that's so important. Thank you for bringing that up, Ben. And so let me reinforce that. I am not in this message giving an idea of how we ought to take the message to our culture. I think there's a message for the Church of Jesus Christ that we need to be the Church of Jesus Christ, that we shouldn't be embarrassed about the ethic that Christ has taught us. Uh, We should embrace the value system that's in the gospel, and we should live out the gospel. At this juncture, I had nothing to say about what we should be saying to our wider culture. I was rather saying, let's learn to live within the gospel of Jesus. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to more of this series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Can you imagine nine days cruising the Caribbean on one of Royal Caribbean's best ships, Freedom of the Seas, enjoying all of its many amenities and beautiful ports of call such as St. Kitts, St. Martin, and Puerto Rico? Now, if that weren't enough, how about adding in the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, the antics and encouragement of Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway, and the incredible inspirational music of award-winning artists Shane and Angela Weeb? Well, this may be the perfect mix of God's creation and time spent in God's Word and worship. 
So here's my invitation. Join us for our 2018 Back to the Bible Canada Caribbean Celebration Cruise from February 3rd to the 11th, departing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The cruise has already reached half of its capacity, so don't wait to register. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or at backtothebible.ca.